And I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we'll be looking at a moment in verse Matthew 16. Words of our Lord Jesus from verse 13 to 19. This little thing came across my Facebook feed this week. In White Plains, Kentucky, reports coming out of United Presbyterian Church are confirming that the church's energy-saving motion-activated lights switched off partway through its worship service on Sunday morning. (laughs) The lights recently installed as a cost-saving measure were designed to turn off after 15 minutes of inactivity in the building. Both the pastor and the congregants remained so still during the opening hymns and the first part of the sermon that the lights turned off, and according to witnesses, the pastor simply continued preaching in the dark, and the lights finally came back on when the church was dismissed. It's a, it's a bit of a lame joke, isn't it? I think the, the really interesting thing about that, that lame joke to me is that it was assigned to a Presbyterian church. That's the most interesting thing, isn't it? And uh, apparently people find this funny because Presbyterians have a reputation for, for perhaps being uh, inactive. Um, if someone raises their hand to the service, which I love to see, uh, everyone else feels a little uncomfortable perhaps, or when, when someone starts to clap, we feel a bit un- uncomfortable. Uh, I love that. And I love to see little Anna dancing up the front when she's... Uh, where is she today? Yeah, love to see that. And I, I think we, we have uh, wonderful services here on Sunday morning. I, I love them myself, and I, I really look forward to our Sunday morning gatherings, and I'm going to miss them a lot over the next three months. And I think we have some wonderful music, uh, Bible studies. I noticed there's a, another Bible study starting this week. I, I love the theology course on Tuesday nights, youth group. I visited youth group on Friday night, and, and what, a, what a great group, and I'd encourage uh, all our young people, if you haven't been to youth group for a while, go along. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, such a wonderful group of young people gathering around God's word and prayer each Friday night. Please do that. I think we have some, some wonderful up-and-coming leaders in our church. And so I think at Cornerstone there, there might be a sense, there might be a growing sense that, that we're doing okay. We're doing okay as a church. Maybe we're even doing well, some might think. And if we think we're doing okay, and if we think we're doing well, then that really is going to be the death of us as a church. If there's any sense of complacency in our church, if there's any sense that that things are going quite well here, that really will be the, the death of us. If there is a lack of urgency in our church for the gospel to go out to the lost, if there's a lack of urgency in our church for people to know Christ and to to be praying and and cleaving to Jesus and and studying his words, then that is going to be the death of this, this church at Cornerstone. And I think that although we come here on a Sunday morning and our our friends are here, those we love are here, and this room is 
is, is somewhat full. It might lead us into, into feeling that, that things are going okay with the church. But let's stop to think for a moment about what's happening outside of our church and to think of the vast numbers of people outside of this building who do not know our Lord Jesus. And when we stop to think about that for just a moment, we'd have to conclude that we're not doing okay. We're not doing well. Because we are a, a, a tiny group, really, and there are vast multitudes of people outside of the walls of this church that are yet to hear about Jesus Christ. And so if we as a church, if there's a sense of complacency in our church, if we are starting to fall asleep because we think things are going well, here is a passage that's going to wake us up. Here is a passage that's going to, to drive out that complacency, complacency which kills a church. It's going to drive out that complacency and it's going to show us our true need and the true riches that we have and the depth of the responsibility that God has given us in this city. So let's look together here at Matthew chapter 16. We read that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was to the, the far north of Palestine. It was right on the borderland of Israel and it was a largely pagan area. So Jesus has taken his disciples into a largely Gentile pagan area. It's a beautiful part of Israel. It's on the, the, the footsteps of Mount Hermon. And Jesus has, has perhaps taken his disciples there for a time of retreat and a time of instruction. And here in this beautiful place in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And this is the most important question that anyone could ever be asked. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Jesus has been ministering for some three years now in Israel. He has been teaching. He has been healing people, driving out demons. He's fed the 5,000. He's been doing mighty acts of power. And so Jesus stops and, and says to his, his disciples, having seen me, having heard my teaching, having witnessed my miracles, who do the people say that I am? It's the most important question anyone could be asked. And they replied, Jesus, this is what we're hearing. This is what people are saying. Some say that you must be John the Baptist who has been resurrected. Others say that you are Elijah. Elijah come back to life. And Elijah ministering again in Israel. And still others, Jeremiah one of the, the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament, or one of the, the other prophets. Now, on the face of it, we might think that Jesus would be deeply complimented by these comparisons, because these are truly the, the great leaders and prophets of the nation of Israel. Jesus himself said, of all those born amongst women, born from women, John the Baptist is the greatest. He's, he's, he's the greatest 
of the prophets. And so for people to say Jesus is like John, well, that should, have, that, that should be a great compliment. Or Elijah, one of the fiercest and boldest of the Old Testament prophets, who took on the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in that great confrontation. Or Jeremiah, one of the greatest of the writing prophets. Surely Jesus would feel uh, a sense of assurance and feel the compliment that he has been compared to some of the greatest prophets of Israel. But in truth, what the people were saying about Jesus was an absolute denigration. It was actually a denigration of Christ. Because John the Baptist, Elijah and Jeremiah were not the Messiah. None of them were the Messiah. None of them were God's King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. None of them were the eternal creator of heaven and earth. These were the servants that Jesus had sent. And so to compare Jesus to these, these cre- created men, Jesus is the creator, they are the creatures, to compare Jesus to these created men, these servants, was in truth a denigration. And I, I believe that this, this passage, this, this verse is, is very much confronting us. And perhaps it's confronting you here this morning. Because perhaps you're here and you have in your mind this idea that Jesus... Yes, he's a great person. Possibly the greatest person that has ever lived. And history is divided between the time before his birth, B.C., and the time after his birth, A.D. And he is a great preacher who's had a massive influence on this planet. But if you do not believe that Jesus is God's son, the Christ the saviour, the creator of the world, then you are believing a lie about him. And you are denigrating him. You are holding him to be less than what he is. Have we seen those ridiculous little plastic figures of Jesus that some people have on their dashboards? Sometimes you see them on the taxi dashboards. And I think, what a, what a ridiculous thing, that those little plastic Jesuses that people have on their, their car dashboards. The fact is, if you say, well, Jesus, he is as great as Elijah. He's as great as John the Baptist. As great as Jeremiah, the greatest man that's ever lived. If that's where you stop, then you have denigrated him in exactly the same way. You have reduced him and put him down in just the same kind of way. Not as silly, perhaps, but you have nevertheless denigrated Jesus Christ. And there are many people and people in the church who continue to hold a lesser view of Jesus than what he is. And I pray that that this is challenging us. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And again, I, I cannot convey the importance of this question. And through these words, Jesus Christ is standing in front of each and every one of us right now. 
And he is saying through these words, who do you say I am? Everyone has their opinion about Jesus. Who do you say I am? Please don't be deceived. This is not about uh, the preacher up the front asking you a theological question. This is the Son of God through his living word confronting you now and saying, who do you say I am? And it is so important, it is vitally important that we make up our mind about this because there are millions of people in hell today who are in hell because they refused to decide. They refused to answer the question. Yes, I hear the question, but I'm not going to answer it. I'll put off answering it. I'll answer it in a year's time, ten years' time. Perhaps on my deathbed, I'll get around to answering this question. Millions in hell who refuse to answer the question. And Jesus stands in front of me, and he stands in front of you here and now, and says, who do you say I am? Never mind what anyone else thinks. What about you? We could perhaps liken it to a wedding. We can see the bride and the groom up the front here. And the pastor asking the bride, will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold, and so on? Now, can we imagine the bride answering, this is a very fine man. And many, this man has a great reputation. And many people admire this man. He's a very great man. And stopping there. Imagine that. <laughs> She's complimented him. But what's she done? She has refused to commit herself to him personally. A wedding is not made by compliments. A marriage is not made when a, when a bride says, this is a great man. The marriage is made when the bride says, he is for me. This is the man that I'm joining my future to. And this is in fact what Jesus Christ is asking his disciples. Never mind what others think about me. Never mind about my reputation. Will you join your life to me? Now. And it, it grieves me that so many people bumble along year after year, decade after decade, refusing to answer this question. They die and they go to hell because they never answered the question and never looked Jesus in the face and said, I will have you. You're for me. I join my life to you here and now. And Simon Peter answers exactly the way a person should answer. He says, you are the Messiah. You're not just a great prophet, Jesus. You're the anointed one, God's anointed eternal king, prophet and priest. And you have come to be the saviour of the world. That's who you are, Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. You're a, a son of God in the way that I'm not a son of God, that no other creature is a son of God. You are his eternal son. And you made heaven and earth with your father. 
And this is, this is the right answer, as we'll see. Because Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. That word blessing, you know, we say God bless. I, I often finish an email, God bless. It's a bit of a throwaway thing, isn't it? God bless you. But to be blessed by God is to be a very happy person. That's what the word means. Happy are you, Simon. To be congratulated are you, Simon Peter. You are blessed. You are happy. Why? Because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, how did Peter know? How did Peter know that Jesus, how did he move from that position of saying that Jesus is far more than Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or the other prophets? How did he know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Because the Father had come and done a work in his heart. The Father had come and, and opened his eyes to see the truth about Jesus. The Father had come and unblocked his ears so he could hear the truth about Jesus. The Father had come and, and taken away that heart of stone and had given him a heart of flesh. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you have come to this place because God has laid his hand on you and blessed you and opened your eyes and your heart to see and to receive the truth. And that's what I pray all the time. Every Sunday morning I pray that God will bless his people here and, and that people will not see or hear any human being up the front, but will see Christ and hear about Christ and that their hearts will be soft and receive Christ. And I pray that God will bless his people in that way every week. And I tell you, says Jesus to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And it, it, it's unfortunate, but there's some lovely wordplay in the original. And some of you know what this wordplay is. I tell you that you are Petros and on this Petra. So it's just the masculine and the neuter for, for rock or stone. It's the same word, but you can hear the similarity, can't you? I tell you that you are Petros and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, is Jesus saying that he would build his church upon Peter, the fisherman, Peter, the extrovert, you know, we all know Peter, don't we? He's, uh, we see so much of ourselves in him. He's, he's impulsive. Peter, who, who says to Jesus, though everyone else will deny you, Jesus, I'll stick with you. And then he, what does he do? Denies him three times. And, and Peter, who, who makes this magnificent profession of faith, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, gets it exactly right. And then in the very next passage, when Jesus said, I'm going to my death in Jerusalem, Peter says, no, God forbid that this happened to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say what? Get behind me, not the rock now, but Satan. And, and, and 
in, in a lapse, in his weakness, Satan takes hold of Peter and, and tempts Jesus to deny his salvation mission through him. Is this the person Jesus is going to build his church on? Peter? Wibbly wobbly Peter? Doesn't seem like a very firm foundation to build a church on, does it? Well, it's not Peter the man. It's Peter enlightened by God so that Peter who grasps the truth about Jesus Christ because God has revealed that truth to him. That's the rock on which Jesus will build his church. People like Peter, from Peter onwards, who see the truth about Christ and grasp him and who entrust their lives to him and, and go forward in him, that's the rock on which Jesus will build his church. And I want us to, just to move past Peter for a moment, I want you to notice Jesus' magnificent promise here. I will build my church. I will build my church. I'm going to build it. It will happen. This is Jesus' promise. And Jesus knows full well that opposition will come. In fact, the very next phrase. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's Hades? Hades is the place of the dead. In the New Testament, the Greek word Hades replaces the Old Testament word Sheol, the place of the dead. And Jesus is saying that, that, that I will build my church, but, but Hades, the realm of the dead, the realm of Satan, the realm of the spiritually dead, those who oppose me and my mission, they will seek to hinder me, to stop me building my church, but they will not overcome it. They will not overcome my building. Think of Ezra. Think of Ezra and the returned exiles rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And there was attack after attack. Military attack, but also a lot of abuse, a lot of criticism, a lot of threats. But they continued to build God's city. Think of the death of our Lord Jesus himself. When Jesus was, was, was dying on the cross, the kingdom of Hades was jubilant. Hooray! Celebrating! Because they believed that they had destroyed the Son of God and destroyed his mission. But at the very moment that it looked as though Jesus Christ and his mission was being destroyed, what was actually happening? That the very moment that the gates of Hades believed that they had destroyed Christ, they themselves had been destroyed. The, the kingdom of Hades had been destroyed at that very moment. What was the apparent defeat of Jesus was actually his victory. It was at that moment that the sins of his people were paid for and, and that life was unleashed to raise his people to life. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. But there's an even, I, I think that there's an even more exciting angle to what Jesus is saying here. 
Because Jesus is not just saying that I will build my church and Hades will come and try to stop me, but it will fail. But there's a positive aspect to it. Because what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus invading the city of Hades, if you like. We see Jesus storming the city. Remember Samson in Judges 16. It's one of my favourite little stories of Samson is when he's in the city of Gaza and they think they've got him surrounded. They think, hooray, we've got Samson. He's as good as dead. And what does he do? He's, he's in the city. He, he grabs the, the, the gates of the city. Posts and all, it says. <laughs> the, the whole gates, posts, the, the crossbar, everything. He rips it up and, and, and takes it far away and throws it on the top of the hill. And this is Jesus. He is the mighty man of God invading the kingdom of Hades, freeing those who are dead. And when Jesus drove out demons, he said, what you are witnessing here is the kingdom of God invading and taking over and I'm binding Satan and those, and those who belong to him, I'm freeing them. And Jesus said, nothing will be able to stop me from doing this. The gates of Hades will not overcome my kingdom building work. And so we finish by looking at verse 19 where Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now he's speaking to Peter and he's speaking to Peter who represents the other disciples and in turn the disciples represent who? The whole church. He's speaking to Peter, he's speaking to his disciples, he's speaking to us. The church that he has built on that Peter-like confession of faith. And he says to us, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this is, uh, this is extraordinary, what Jesus is saying here. It's really extraordinary. He's saying to the church, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is my kingdom, says Jesus. They're my gates. I decide who is excluded. I decide who comes in and I'm giving the keys you. Now, I, I can see by the look on your faces that you, you don't quite uh, believe it, so look for yourself. Don't, don't look at me. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. Meaning that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, meaning uh, unlocked, untied, will be loosed in heaven. And what is our Lord Jesus saying to us here? He is saying, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates representing the power of the devil, the power of Hades, will not prevent me from building my church. And my church will march out into the realm of Hades to save the dead, to bring the dead into life, 
and blessedness in my kingdom and I'm giving you that task he says I'm going to do it but I'm giving you the keys you're the ones who are going to unlock heaven for those who are dead in the kingdom of Hades you're going to unlock the gates just please look at it again because I don't think even I believe it what I mean by that is it's taking a while to get hold of this I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven you have the keys and so what our Lord Jesus is saying is if we lift up our eyes and we look at at the city in which we live and it's a city full of people who are spiritually dead they don't know God's son they don't have a certain hope for the future when they hear about Jesus they get annoyed at best more likely angry and here is a multitude of people who are already dead in their sins and they are facing a second and eternal death and you have the keys says Jesus church you have the keys it's your job to go and tell people that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and to pray that God will open the hearts of people in the same way that he opened the hearts of Peter it's our job, it's our mission the great commission it's in the same book go into all the world making disciples baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit God in his providence and this is perhaps this is a thought that will either thrill you or terrify you or both but God has linked the fate of our city and their eternal life to the faithfulness of his churches Cornerstone not just Cornerstone every Bible believing, Bible teaching church in the city God has linked the eternal destiny of the city in his providence to us will we take those keys and unlock the gates of heaven for those who are lost and how do we do that? we pray we tell people the truth about Jesus Christ it's thrilling and it's terrifying and so yeah we have I, I thank God for our lovely Sunday mornings and we pray and we've got some great up and coming leaders and God's blessed us with wonderful elders and deacons and other ministry leaders and we have many wonderful Bible studies and a theology course and a, and a great youth group and God has blessed our church with young people and I can't begin to say what a privilege and a blessing it is to have young people in our church there are so many churches that would give anything to have even one young person in the church we've got young people in our church it's exciting 
But I can't help Cornerstone. I can't help feeling that perhaps we've become becoming content, comfortable. But how can we remain comfortable when there's a whole city in the kingdom of Hades? There are people dying out there. How can we be complacent? How can we be drowsy, half asleep? How can we sleep at all knowing that that is true? Especially when Jesus has said, I've given you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You've got the keys. The fate of those people, I've put them in your hands. In my providence, I've put them in your hands to go and turn the keys and to open the gates of heaven. How different I think our services would be if we knew we had the keys. I think they'd be different, don't you? And Paul, Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, he describes a church service where the unbeliever comes in and hears the praises of God's people, hears the prayers, hears the word being preached, and they fall down on their face and say, Surely God is among you. That's a church that knows that they've got the keys of heaven. How different our praying would be, how different our prayer meetings would be if we knew we had the keys in our hands. There'd be standing room only downstairs, I think. And it would be a hard time stopping that prayer meeting. And how different our Bible studies would be. They are wonderful studies. It is such a privilege that God's Word is open week after week. But they'd be different again if we knew we had the keys. We would be crying out for the young believer to come, 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 come and, and, and study God's word with me. The words of life. I've got the keys. The keys to heaven. Come and be a part of this. Our Bible studies, our youth group. Everything, which they're good, but they'd be transformed if we knew we had the keys. And we would beg to disciple people, wouldn't we? We would, we would beg, we'd grab someone and say, let me walk with you and love you and share my life with you and open God's word with you. It's the word of life. We would beg to disciple people if we knew we had the keys. Every visitor would be treasured and would say, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Walk with me. Let me spend some time with you and open God's word with you. We have the keys. I finish with an anecdote. In the 1830s, Robert Murray McShane. Anyone heard of McShane? Anyone heard of McShane's Bible reading plan? Okay, probably more people. Written by Robert Murray McShane, a minister in his 20s in Scotland in the first half of the 19th century. And Robert Murray McShane, at the age of 25, his church was large and growing, a magnificent preacher of God's word. And he was starting to get sick and tired, and he went to visit Israel to start a mission, to help establish a mission to the Jewish people in Israel in 1839. And while he was in Israel, revival broke out. 
in his church. While he was away, the Spirit moved in his church and he heard from a distance, my church is on fire. I'm not there. It must have been so frustrating for him. He's preaching God's word year after year. And then he's hearing these reports. The Spirit has taken hold. There's a revival in my church. And he returned. He left the church in the hands of a 25-year-old preacher, by the way. And God used that, that young man. And the church took off. Set ablaze. I'm no Murray McShane, not worthy to untie his sandals. Nothing like him. But God's the same. It's the same God. He's just as powerful today as he was then. And I could not hear better news while I'm away in the next three months than to hear something's happening. The church has the keys. They know they've got the keys. The prayer meetings are, are multiplying. Discipling is multiplying. People becoming Christians could not imagine anything better. Just stay in France because things are happening here. <laughs> That'll be alright. I would be very sad, but uh, I pray that God will, will do this. That will be my prayer every day in the next three months. And let me begin by praying that now. Yes, Heavenly Father, forgive us because <clears throat> it's there in black and white that, that you've given us the keys to the kingdom. And we've not realised it or we've not wanted it. We've not wanted the responsibility that comes with that. Forgive us for that. And I pray that we might pick up these keys and use them and, and unlock the kingdom of heaven to those around us. And I pray for my church family. I, I love them, Father. And the next three months will go quickly. But I pray... I pray indeed that your spirit will move powerfully here. That the lost will be saved. That the complacent will be woken up. That prayer will multiply. Discipleship will multiply. That your word will be heard powerfully from across this pulpit. And from the lives of all your people, young and old. I pray, Father, for your hand of blessing on Cornerstone Church. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.